you can turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to go back into Luke now. Um, and um, the passage I'm going to preach on is verse um, 37 to 50. But we're going to back up to verse number 28 because it's important for the context of the sermon today. So if you'll turn in Luke 9 and verse number 28 and then stand with me as we read scripture. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. They were sleeping during the prayer meeting. At least you close your eyes in a prayer meeting. Some of you all sleep during my sermons, but that's another thing altogether, right? But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. This cloud is not fog like what we had this morning. This is the glory cloud of um, the infinite God. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Now, I want to explain what this does not say. What this does not say is that they came down the mountain the next day and there was a crowd. They came down the mountain, then on the next day. You see what I'm saying? Some of the other Gospels make it clear that he, they came immediately down the mountain. And so they came down the mountain, whatever they did, the next day there was a crowd after they'd had a, a night's sleep, probably there in Caesarea Philippi or something like that. But anyway, um, let's see, verse number 38. And, and behold, a man from the crowd cried, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, 
Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you will impress upon our hearts the uh, truth that you would have us to know today. Lord, you must increase, I must decrease. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we, we haven't been in Luke since the month of August, have we? And so it's, it's been a while, and I need to kind of refresh you on a little bit of the context. Uh, Luke is wrapping up his accounting of the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Galilee is to the north of Jerusalem, and the climax of that, that Galilean ministry is the transfiguration. The disciples saw, three of them, Peter, James, and John, saw the, the glory of Jesus Christ, something that no one in their generation had seen before, the glory of Christ. And it was so awesome, so awe-inspiring, that they fell down in fear. They, they couldn't look at it. It was it was a fearful thing. And that was the climax. And it was to show them the power of God and that this same God is going to give them ministry abilities. Then the, the, the um, Galilean ministry wraps up in Luke chapter 9, verse number 50, which is the next verse. We didn't read the verse, but look at it with me. It says this. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Meaning, we would say today, when the days draw near for him to go, he took off for Jerusalem. He took off on his trip. So the first major section of Luke ends at Luke 9.50. So now, Luke 9.51 through, I think it's 19.26 or 36. I can't remember what verse it is exactly. All of that, and that's a, that's a heavy teaching portion of Jesus, that's, they're going from Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, to Jerusalem. Then from 19, chapter number 19, at the triumphal entry, you have the other major section of Luke, which is the Passion Week, okay? So I wanted you to, to know broadly, there's three major sections in Luke, and we're finishing up section number one on the Galilean ministry. Now, between the transfiguration and the start of their journey to Jerusalem, there are four vignettes that we just read that prepare the disciples for a mission trip that Jesus is about to send them on. There's 72 of them. You see that in chapter 10. And um, he sends them out on a mission trip. But before we get there, there are four scenes that Luke points out that are important for all disciples of Jesus Christ because there are four common errors or mistakes that all Christians make at one time or another. To be honest with you, I'm guilty of all four. I'll just tell you that right off the bat, and I'll tell you something else you are too, um, just, just uh, because I don't want to feel alone up here. All right, but let's just jump in. Number one mistake that all Christians do it's a common mistake we have to guard against is not trusting God to do what only He can do. 
There are many, many things that only God can do. Primarily everything, right? The disciples, they encounter a boy who is afflicted by a demon. Verse number 39 tells us that the demon throws this little boy into convulsion. He foams, and it says this demon doesn't leave the poor little boy alone. Whatever physical manifestation, uh, there's a lot of people who say it's probably an epileptic fit, and he's foaming at the mouth because of epilepsy. It doesn't matter. Whatever the, the physical manifestation, the boy was under the influence of the supernatural evil realm. Once again, we see that demons are allowed to cause real physical harm to people. This is one of these examples of it. Uh, demons cause true physical harm and God allows it. But here's the problem. The problem is not that the demons allow it, or I mean that the demons do it. The problem is that the disciples can't cast the demon out. That's the real problem. And it's a real problem in light of Luke chapter 9. Look at verse number 1 of Luke chapter 9. We covered that some months ago. Luke 9, 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them a power, which means they can, um, they can overcome them, B, the authority, which means now they have the, the authority, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? The ability, not ability, anyway, I'll think of the word about 10 minutes from now. And uh, gave them power and authority over all demons, not just some, all demons, to, ca ca to cure diseases. Now we have to ask ourselves a question. Why couldn't they cast this demon out? Right? God gave him authority. Why can't they cast this demon out? I mean, they've done this thing before. If you read the first few verses of chapter 9, it's clear that not only did they heal people, but they cast out demons. If, if anything, they should have more reason for confidence. Now they confess Jesus as the Christ. And now some of them have even seen his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Nevertheless, they failed. Why did they fail to cast this demon out? Was, was it because this is a really strong demon? He was like a demon on steroids. Was it because um, they lost their power? They lost their power? No. The answer is, it was their lack of faith. Look at what Jesus said to them. O faithless, and this is to the disciples, not the Father, to the disciples. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and to bear with you? That's not very um, confidence inspiring, is it? I mean, when I get to heaven, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear faithless and twisted generation. I don't think anybody else here does either, right? But um, he, what he did then after saying that is he asked the father to come forward with the boy. As they're coming forward, the Bible says, verse number 42, that Satan made one last desperate attempt. The demon made one last desperate attempt to keep him from Jesus while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and clean, uh, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Now, this is interesting. The, the word through, through noun, 
This does not um, convey what the word means. The word that's translated through means it ripped him apart. The, the idea is that, um, that it was to tear in pieces. The word is used of rabid animals tearing other animals apart. This is a very, very violent attack on a poor little boy. A demon had no mercy whatsoever. And from this, we can learn a valuable lesson. Please, please hear this lesson. Satan never gives up. And oftentimes, his fight is the worst and the meanest right before somebody comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan at this point will make his most violent assault on humanity. Some of you have probably witnessed it when you've had a relative or a close friend come to Jesus Christ and it seems like right before he comes, they're worse than they've ever been. That's what Satan does. And just like that, Jesus performed the miracle that the disciples could have performed themselves if they only believed. The end result in verse number 43, if you look at the first part of 43, it says, and they were astonished, all were astonished at the majesty of God. They were, they were astonished. Uh, they were bewildered by the majesty of God. The word majesty, by the way, is the power and the greatness of Jesus Christ. We serve a majestic God. That majestic God lives in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. There is no principality, power, evil, darkness, nothing that can overcome the Holy Spirit, the majestic God that resides inside all of us. Amen. It's a wonderful truth to know. There's a song. I love the song. Same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. I love that. Now we tend to look at these guys and judge them, don't we? You know, look, you're with Jesus. You've seen him feed the 5,000, stop the storm. Some of you were on the Mount of Transfiguration. What's wrong with you guys? Except we're the exact same way, aren't we? We do not trust God to do all the spiritual work that only He can do. <clears throat> this comes out in many ways in our lives. One of the ways is mentioned in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 9, gives us one of the ways that our unbelief is manifested. You know how we manifest our, our unbelief? Probably the most common way. He said, this is what Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer our prayerlessness is a form of unbelief and instead of praying and trusting god to do what only he can do we try to do things on our own parents concerned for their children will resort to 
uh, manipulative tactics instead of faithfully teaching their children. Churches turn to worldly techniques and flashbang and, and all sorts of different things to manufacture a response. They rely upon drama and other things to draw a crowd. A lot of times, evangelism techniques are just that. They're just techniques. That's it. One of the, uh, I served in a couple churches where uh, they, they still had altar calls. You guys remember the old altar call? And you sang 14 verses of Just As I Am. And, um, you know, the, it was very high pressure. In one of the churches I served, the pastor sat the staff down and the leadership down and said, look, this is all I want you to do. When I start the altar call, I want you all to come forward and kneel down and pray because that's going to like prime the pump, as it were. You know what I mean? You know what that's called? Manipulation. I didn't do it. So um, I didn't get in trouble for it, but I didn't do it um, because I felt like it was manipulation. What do we need? We need faith in our ministry. We need faith in God in our ministry, don't we? Both as individual Christians and as a church, we may be very busy serving the Lord in very practical ways, but this makes a spiritual difference only when we depend upon God to do what He can do to advance the gospel. We need this faith in our evangelism. Leading somebody to Christ doesn't depend upon the skill of our presentation or the smoothness of our tongue or us having an answer for every question. Somebody coming to Christ relies upon the grace of God and the grace of God only, right? We, we need this faith in our discipleship. No matter how good advice we give, we cannot be the Holy Spirit for, for anyone else. Only God can change someone's life, right? Then we, we need faith in our ongoing war with Satan. Who, he's seeking to destroy everything we do, and he's seeking to destroy us as well. And so the only way to be safe from the evil one is through faith in Jesus Christ and in His mighty power. We, we, need, we need this faith in discipling our children. Parents, are you listening? Discipling our children who depend upon God to change their children's heart. And you do it by faithfully teaching the Word and modeling Christ-like behavior in the home. And then you pray like crazy. I've been there hours and hours begging God to change my children's heart, not sleeping at night, up in prayer, begging God for my children's heart. That's what we do because it's not up to us. Make no mistake, God is the only one who can do any of these things. How liberating is that? It's not up to me to do all the perfect things for my children to turn out well. It's not up to me to say all the right words so that my friend gets saved. 
It's not up to me to say the right thing, come up with the right verses, to counsel a friend for a heart change. It's all up to God. I just do the best I can and leave the rest up to God. He gets all the glory anyway. Therefore, we, we are called to trust Him through Jesus Christ. And when we do this, you know what happens? This is the exciting part. When we trust God, and, let, and not let God, but trust God to do what only He can do, we see His majesty. In all the majesty, we see His majesty in our own spiritual growth, in healing of wounded relationships, in the salvation of sinners, in the triumph of the church over spiritual darkness. Just trust God to do what only He can do. The second mistake that we make is that we take our eyes off the cross. Notice the second half of verse number 43. This, this is very intriguing. A lot of people read this and they're like, I don't understand this. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, get this through your thick skulls, right? The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, why on earth, when they're marveling at how glorious God is, did Jesus remind them that he's going to Jerusalem? He's, he's pointing them back to what is most important. He did not want them to get so caught up in ministry that they lose sight of the cross. I mean, what Jesus was doing, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? To just go around the world performing miracles, casting out demons. Wouldn't it be kind of cool? But that's not what God, Jesus was called to do. It had been only about a week since he first told him he's going to have to suffer many things and, and be killed before rising again. And now he wanted it, them to hear it again. The main message of the gospel is not that Jesus can perform exorcisms or work other kind of wonders. The, the main message of the gospel is that he came to suffer to die on the cross, be resurrected the third day, and ascended into glory. And is there waiting for us, preparing a place for us. That's the glorious message of the gospel. But this second prediction of his death, they didn't even understand. <laughs> look, look at verse number 45. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Now what's going on here? Um, it was concealed from them. Did, did, who did that? Did God do that or did Satan do that? We don't know. We know from 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that the God of this world blinds the eyes of men so that they cannot see the, glorious, the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We know that God can overcome it. But we also know that God blinds eyes too but whatever the reason is they are kept from understanding it was concealed from them either by satan or by the lord regardless here's the the, the main point it is in the power of god to open their spiritual eyes and he did open their spiritual eyes you remember when it happened you go to luke 24 road to emmaus 
He taught them all the way to Emmaus. And it wasn't until they broke bread, or he broke bread, prayed over the, the, the meal, that all of a sudden their eyes are open. They realize who they're talking to and he disappeared. It's all up to God. To these disciples, you know what? To the disciples, dying on the cross, that's weakness. That's shameful. It's unthinkable way to die. It's despicable. Only the worst, most hardened criminals died on the cross. It's like death row. And even though we, we understand the crucifixion and resurrection, we make the same mistake in different ways, don't we? We do. We, we, we're real good to keep the cross near the center of our worship. But we don't keep it in the, in the center of our daily discipleship. Jesus called us to follow him all the way to the crucifixion, didn't he? Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. What has God called us to do? He's called us to deny ourselves. Right? Take up our cross daily and follow him. But here's a question. Are we giving the kind of sacrificial love that shows that we serve a crucified Savior? Too often, we, we take our eyes off the cross. What does that look like in real terms when we take our eyes off the cross? Well, first of all, we're not satisfied with Jesus. That'd be the first one, isn't it? And so when that happens, what do we do? We start wanting all the other things that this life has to offer. We're not willing to suffer the embarrassment of talking about Jesus with friends. Taking our eyes off the cross is not risk harming our careers by taking our stand on a biblical principle. Taking our eyes off the cross looks like not giving up the comforts of this life as we know, to take the gospel to far places around the world. We don't want to suffer, even for Jesus, so we take our eyes off the cross. The cross is the true power. The message of the cross. I, I think about this every Sunday. Every Sunday morning, I, can, I take my sermon manuscript not literally, but figuratively, every Sunday morning, I tell the Lord, you know what? These are just words. These are just words. God, take your message of the cross and use your words and your message to change hearts because that's all we have. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2.2. Listen to what he said. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. Now, he was saying this because he was comparing himself to the eloquent speakers of the day. When we went through 1 Corinthians, I explained what that was. These men were phenomenal orators. Entertaining. You, you can get on YouTube, and there are certain very popular men or, and women who speak on YouTube, and they have millions of followers. And they're, they're just fascinating to listen to aren't they Paul said I'm not like that 
I just speak about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's our message, as simple as it may seem. The cross must stay at the center of our evangelism, at the center of our discipleship, at the center of our stewardship, making costly decisions. You know, it costs something to... um, it costs something to um, take your time, open your home. It costs time. It costs time to pour into somebody else's life and discipleship. It costs money sometimes, doesn't it? Are you willing? Everything that we have, our time, our money, um, our abilities, the Bible is very clear, Jesus is very clear, all of those he gave to us, and we just have stewardship of them. That's it. That's it. So if He gives you money, and He gives you time, and you give it back in service to Him, what do you think is going to happen? Is He going to say, that was a stupid mistake? No. He's going to reward you. He's going to be pleased with you. And, and um, you're going to know Him better. Let me move on. Third, uh, thinking too much of ourselves. Verse number 46. How on earth they came up with this argument here, I'll never know. An argument arose among them about which is the greatest. Now, it could be directly related to which of them went up to the mountain with Jesus. Which of them cast out the most demons. Which of them got to spend the most time with Jesus talking to him? We don't know. Have you ever thought about what a dumb argument that is? I mean, which one of them, they fell asleep in a prayer meeting. Remember we read that. Their arguing about which one is the greatest is is like... um, arguing over and trying to find the world's tallest pygmy. It's about that sensible. And you can do it. You can find the world's tallest pygmy, but does it really matter? It'd be akin to me back in his heyday, going to Michael Jordan, meeting him on the street and saying, hey, hey, Michael, I was a guard on my high school basketball team. What do you think about that? I mean, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? Why are you guys laughing? These, trying all of this was just foolish because the disciples, they were striving to reach the wrong end of the scale. Jesus had been telling them to deny themselves. But rather than carry the crosses, they were still trying to climb to the top of the spiritual ladder. In order to show them what's important, Jesus took a child by his side. I love this. I really do. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The rabbis of the day ignored children. They they thought of children as unimportant, but not Jesus. Jesus loved little children. He noticed little children and he drew them close. And, and this is why I want to know your children. I want to know your children so I have the opportunity to tell them how great Jesus is and to model Jesus Christ as well. 
I want to know your children by name. That's a, that's a big order, by the way. I want to know them by name. I want to be able to talk to them. And when I talk about Jesus, for them to know I really do care about your children. Children are important. And so, this is think about Jesus' logic that he just laid down here. This is so amazing. According to Jesus... When people have enough humility to welcome children in this way, they're really welcoming the triune God. Isn't that what he says? Look at what he says again. Whoever receives this child in my name receives who? Jesus. And whoever receives Jesus receives him who sent me. And that would be talking about the the Father. Stunning, isn't it? Do you take the Bible at face value? You think God's words at face value? This is one of the upside-down values of the kingdom of God, in which the least are the greatest. And notice, Jesus doesn't say, He doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't say anything about who's the greatest. He simply says, whoever is least is great, without making any comparisons. Because true greatness in the eyes of God comes when we take the lowest place. Seeking no recognition for ourselves, but showing concern for the weak and the helpless. Um, As followers of Christ, we're called to care for people who usually get overlooked because to some people they, they don't seem all that important at all. And sometimes they're just a lot of trouble. Right? True spiritual greatness is determined by the company we keep. So what, what a mistake it is to, to play this kind of spiritual one-upmanship. You know, my church is better than your church. My worship is more pleasing to God than your worship. My devotions are better than your devotions because mine are longer. My ministry is more important than your ministry. My way of living the Christian life or my way of educating my children or my way of witnessing for Jesus is way better than yours. Y'all just need to get on my bandwagon. But there's a lot of people who don't even do it in that obvious way. There are other people, this, this, is, how, this is how they do their one-upmanship. You know how they do it? They're constantly broken. Have you ever met the constantly broken person? What are they doing? They may not even realize they're doing it. There's a certain amount of piety sometimes, not all the time, Please don't tell me saying this all the time. But sometimes there's a certain amount of piety that they want you to think that they have. You have to be very careful about that as well when we're um, talking about things. That's why the other day I was kind of making light. I don't have this great Bible reading plan. I just read it. Okay? I don't tell you, I'm not going to tell you how long, how long my prayer life is, or none of that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter that I tell you, right? What matters is that we're following the Christian God and that we don't think too highly of ourselves because we're nothing. And let me go to the last one. This leads us to the fourth error that Christians make, and that is we fight the wrong enemy. Look at what, how John replied. Again, this is, this is a weird response to me. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name And we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now Jesus replies, difficult to understand. He says, 
Do not stop him, for one who is not against you is for you. Now, I don't know why Jesus said that. It could be that when they rebuked the man, the man that Jesus perceived that they were doing it out of some sort of sinful self-importance. You know, look, dude, we're the disciples. You're nobody. Quit. Whatever it is, they were doing something. They didn't have a monopoly on God's work. What's, what's actually funny, think about this, they couldn't cast out that demon out of that little boy. And they're telling some guy who could, in Jesus' name, don't. (laughs) Maybe it was jealousy. This statement is so hard to understand, though. Whoever is not against you is for you. Because in Luke 11, 23, you know what Jesus says? The exact opposite. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. All right. So now, did, did, does Jesus contradict himself in two chapters? The answer is no. We'll see when we get there that on the occasion when Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus was specifically talking about the work of Satan with whom there can be no compromise. But whether it's talking about Satan, whoever is against me, um, not with me is against me, or whether he's talking about other disciples when he says, whoever is not against you is for you. Regardless, what Jesus is saying is there's no middle ground. There is zero middle ground. You're either with Jesus or you're not with Jesus. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. Here John is talking about someone who's trying to serve Christ however imperfectly, and however unlike the disciples trusted him enough to cast out the demons. Think about this one. Jesus told the disciples the reason you couldn't do it is because you didn't have enough faith. This guy did. Ironic, isn't it? He had the faith. Because that's what it takes. It takes faith. The man casting out the demons was not against their ministry, and therefore they had no business trying to stop him. In fact, this is a greater sin than anything that, that might have been wrong with the other man's ministry. I want to give you an important principle. This is, this is what we pull away from this, um, this little vignette here. The principle is, anytime we look at the way other people are serving Christ and are tempted to think that they should do things differently, unless we are in a position of oversight, we need to keep our mouths shut. It's not exactly what my notes say, but that's what I put down. That's what I said. I'm not talking about fundamental matters of doctrine, um, but of various ways people who are fighting against the power of Satan do the gospel work. Are there other churches, other denominations, other people, other parents, other teachers who do things far differently from you but are doing them in a doctrinally right manner. And we just need to let it be. The answer is yes. Like, for example, parenting. Parents of parents. You know, you watch the way your kids raise their kids, and you're thinking, when, I, when they were that age, 
That didn't happen. Do your, do your kids love Jesus? Are they training them about Jesus? Then leave it alone. <laughs> Makes Christmas a whole lot better. <laughs> so, if, if there are other churches doing things differently, other Christians doing things differently, it's not our responsibility to correct them unless we're in spiritual oversight. I meet with a group um, towards the end of January. We're uh, going to be meeting again. It's a group of pastors in the area. We have lunch. All different denominations. I can have lunch with these guys because they, they love Jesus. Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, then us non-denominational heretic types. You know, we don't know what we're doing. We're just playing it by the hip, um, according to some of my Presbyterian brethren. But we get together, and you know what we fellowship around? Jesus Christ. You know what we don't try to do? Well, you know, in your liturgy, you ought to change this. Or we do it this way in our way's best. No, because it doesn't matter. You know what it shows? Um, I'll never forget this. Some of you have heard of the Gospel Coalition, I'm sure. The Gospel Coalition, I used to go to the very early meetings back in the early 2000s when they were in Chicago. I lived in northern Wisconsin, and it's just easy to get down there. When they moved to Florida or wherever else they moved, I'm like, I'm not going down there. But uh, I'd drive down there, and I would, I would go to this, and the, the last couple of years I, I was there, I think they had 6,000 and 8,000. I think they got way bigger than that. But I would look around, and there's all these people from all these other traditions that don't do things the way I do it. Some of them were more charismatic. Some of them were wearing their robes and their collars. Some of them were uh, speaking different ways, not charismatically, but the way they spoke about Christ and stuff like that. And you know, I walked away from that saying, is God not gracious? Because here's six or 8,000 people looking at everybody else saying, I'm right and they're all wrong. Isn't that what we do? And yet God is saving people and ministering through all these different denominations. Now, I do need to throw in one, one thing here, and that is this. We need to have doctrine, and we need to have denominational-type standards and adhere to them. Those things are important. If we don't have a standard at all and just say, well, anything goes, we're in trouble. So I did want to mention that. But it's not our God-given responsibility to uh, address it. J.C. Ryle um, said this. He was a pastor at the, uh, the turn of the 20th century in England. This is what he said. He lamented the way thousands of Christians in every period of church history have spent their lives copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They've imagined in their petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. Sound familiar? We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly on all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel is preached and the devil's kingdom is pulled down. Let me say that again. We must be thankful when sin is opposed, 
the gospel is preached and the devil's kingdom is pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way that we like. And then he concludes this way. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted, if Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and no matter what church he may belong. Amen and amen, right? Yeah. So there you have it. Four common errors that we're prone to. We, we tend not to trust God to do only what He can do. We take matters in our own hands as if we are effective at all. We often take our eyes off the cross, wanting personal comfort over denying ourselves uh, and taking up the cross. We think way too highly of ourselves and we do not readily take the lowest place. And we fight the wrong enemy, almost never fighting doctrinal battles, but rather we fight with one another to get our own way. We emphasize the procedural and the methodological to the detriment of gospel unity. May the Lord call us to keep the cross of Jesus Christ central, rely upon God and God alone, and praise Him and glorify Him. And may the grace of God just permeate our assembly and the power of God work through our lives. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful little passage. It's very convicting. And frankly, Lord, every now and then we need convicting sermons. And so, Lord, I pray that you will work in hearts, our hearts, that we will uh, focus on Jesus. As, as the song says, turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your great glory and grace. Amen.